So I think digging into some of that history is important. There are cool stories of path-breaking, trailblazing women who did things no one had ever done before that we now take for granted. So dig in. There's lots of resources coming out across the country if you're in the United States for this anniversary. But I think one of the important things we can do is to name and find the women in our own families, in our own communities who've made things better. When you're driving down the street, when you're in public spaces, notice the street names, the building names, and the statues. Who do you see? It's usually a lot of men, and mm-hmm. usually white men at that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's so much that we could do to make public the contributions of women, of people of color, of people in our society who are usually left out. And I think that the suffragists who fought for voting rights would count it as carrying forward their legacy if we were working to not only honor their history, but to make sure that we are excavating and lifting up voices that have been lost for too long. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall as we look forward next week to celebrating Women's Equality Day. I wanted to make sure that we had this very important conversation about thinking women. Now, uh, I believe in women, especially thinking women, and I think that that quote uh, from Emmeline B. Wells certainly uh, plays into the discussion that we'll have today with Catherine Kitterman. Now, here's the deal. Do you not know who Emmeline B. Wells is? Do you not know her significance in not only the history of the church, but also in the history of these United States? Well, here to answer those questions and more, and we'll talk about Women's Equality Day with Catherine Kitterman. Thanks for being here, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Now, you and Rebecca Ryan Clark, who's not going to be a part of this discussion, have come up with this book, Thinking Women, A Timeline of Suffrage in Utah. Uh, I know the answer, but to really onboard this conversation, why are we doing this book now? Yeah, this book is really important this year because 2020 marks several important anniversaries for voting rights, especially for women in the United States. So 1870, 150 years ago, was the first time that women voted with equal suffrage in the United States. That means they voted with the same voting voting rights that men had. And that happened in Utah. The first woman to cast a ballot under an equal suffrage law was Sarah Young, who voted in Utah or in Salt Lake City's municipal election on February 14th. And, then so, we, and we hear the name Seraph Young, and that's got to be some relation to Brigham Young, I would think. It is, in fact. She was his grandniece, so not a very close relation, but uh, lots of newspapers reported that she was his granddaughter incorrectly and kind of made a big hype about that. Um, but she was the first person to cast her ballot, probably because she was a school teacher. She was on her way to work that day. Hmm. So hmm. other women voted, but the newspapers didn't write their names down. It, it's an interesting thing to recognize that this is not too long ago. Right. Like like 150 years. I mean, sure, that's much longer than our additive lifetimes together, but not much longer than that. And this was a time when up up until that point, women had not cast a vote. Women weren't voting in the same ways that we would expect. There were a couple situations in the U.S. where women had been able to vote if they owned property or if it was a school board election, just really limited circumstances. But I think one thing we have to remember is that the U.S. Constitution did not set any voting requirements or say anything about who could vote. It left that up to the states. And all the way up until 1870, no state or territory allowed women citizens this blanket right of the right to vote. And that would change really slowly. So I think that there, uh, I think a a base level of understanding for people about this is they go, yeah, women's rights and Utah had something to do with it. And I think that we sort of, unless you have taken the time to study, you, you probably don't know any of these characters who these 
who these people are that had a part of the movement, certainly beyond Seraph Young, but but who, why, and and how? Why is it that Utah was that first place? Yeah, it's a really interesting and complicated story um, because if you're familiar with U.S. history, you know that 1870 was 50 years before the 19th Amendment would be ratified, and that was the amendment to the U.S. Constitution that protected in some ways or guaranteed U.S. women's right to vote, although we know that voting rights for women of color still took longer. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is another piece of that. So when you look back to 1870, that's a long time before many women in the United States cast their first ballots. And there were several reasons for this. At the end of the Civil War, um, congressional Republicans in the United States were looking to find ways to end the practice of polygamy in Utah and other Western territories. And they were casting about for some ideas to do this when some women who wanted the right to vote tried to marry the issue in Congress. They said, mm. if you give women the right to vote in Utah territory or in the West in general, these women will surely vote to free themselves from the system of polygamy. They'll surely end that by using their political power. And so there were a few bills in Congress in the late 1860s that said, we're going to give women the right to vote in order to end polygamy. Hmm. Now, those didn't go anywhere, but here in Utah, the discussion started and um, as you can imagine, many Latter-day Saints had a little bit of a different view yeah, of what yeah. would happen. Especially where we feel like it's given from God, it probably they would have voted or found themselves voting the opposite way than maybe the, the government would have thought they would. Yeah, and it looks like Latter-day Saint church leaders were pretty confident that that would happen as well. Hmm. So there were lots of conversations going on at the time, and anti-polygamy legislation did lead into this because there were laws that were proposed that would have taken away men's rights to vote if they were polygamists and things like this. Mm. And Utah women, even before they actually got the right to vote, leading Latter-day Saint women like Sarah Kimball and the 15th Ward Relief Society and others, they gathered women to the, hold these big indignation meetings, large meetings where women would come together, protest this proposed anti-polygamy law, and say, we need to protect our rights as American citizens. Hmm. That was their first real entrance collectively onto a political stage. And it showed Latter-day Saint men that they could trust women in the church to defend their interests, if that makes sense. Hmm. And the law that gave women voting rights, women citizens voting rights, passed just a few weeks after these large indignation meetings had happened. Talk to me about what those looked like. Certainly, if, if anyone has watched the news recently, we have certainly seen uh, different ways where people will share their beliefs in, in and and what they feel like should be done or maybe shouldn't be done. What did, what did these indignation meetings look like? Yeah, indignation meetings were a common feature, especially before the Civil War in the United States. So it's a place where people would come and kind of formalize their expressions of anger, their, their upset over a particular law, policy, leader, and they gather together to give strength to their opinions. So in these meetings, women were opening with prayer, they were having speakers rise to share their feelings about their rights as American citizens, um, what they felt that they had been called to do by God, those sorts of things. And they would write up these resolutions that everyone would sign or agree to at the end saying, we, we resolve that the United States government has no right to do this, these sorts of things. And they would send these in from different territories, send in their reports sorry, from different settlements across the territory, mm -hmm. send in their reports to be published in the Deseret News. They said, we're going to petition um, the United States government and all of these things. So women were really gathering here as a force to be reckoned with. It was a way that bound them together and made their voices louder. And interestingly, the largest meeting in Salt Lake City on January 13th, 1870, they didn't let any men inside the building except newspaper reporters. Hmm. So these were calculated to gain publicity, both locally and nationally, 
leading Latter-day Saint women like Eliza R. Snow and others knew that they were portrayed as oppressed and degraded and deluded women in the press. And they wanted to present a different picture. They wanted to show that they were articulate, that they were thinking women, right? And that they would stand by Latter-day Saint leaders and Latter-day Saint church practice. Now, being able to have and hold a, a meeting like that where they kept every man out except for for you know those that were in the press, I would have to think, though, within that time frame, certainly, and, and maybe within some confines of the church, that there would be some that were like, hang on, women, I'm not sure what we're doing here. Was there a, a pushback uh, with, within not only the Utah Territory, but within the church as well? There wasn't a large pushback that we can see in the sources, in the mm. sense of any organized movement, but there were definitely people who were speaking out saying, this isn't a good idea. I mean, this was a laughable idea anywhere in the country at that time that women should be exercising political power or have a say in government. And there were some women even who raised questions about maybe we're going too far. You know, I don't want any more rights than I have now, these sorts of things. So there was, of course, a variety of opinions. But interestingly, the territorial legislature, which was made up entirely of Latter-day Saint legislators passed this suffrage law unanimously. Hmm. So they seemed to think that um, whether or not everybody felt like it was the right thing to do, that women were men's equals, they seemed to think that it would work, that it could work, and that women were potentially valuable partners in in defending the kingdom in some ways, both politically as well as other ways. Which, which is pretty awesome if you stop and think about that. Like the, the, the value that is placed certainly on, on the voices, but just... To know where where uh, within the territory and within the church in this time compared to maybe others, if we can forgive the term, the pi- almost pioneering that 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 sort of thought or that way of of acceptance and furtherance of it. And out here in the American West, there was a lot of that going on as well. So mm. Wyoming had passed a suffrage law earlier, a couple months earlier, just two months ahead of Utah. Ah, um, Wyoming, but- come on. <laughs> They win for passing the law first, but Utah held elections sooner. That's yeah, why women that, here Wyoming. cast the first ballot. Take that, Wyoming. <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's something everybody knows that story of Wyoming. And people don't associate Utah usually with being a leading place for women's rights. And there are a lot of stereotypes that go in with that. But part of it was the same reason why people at the time thought it was weird. And it's because of the practice of polygamy. So let's talk about some of these people. I think that uh, too often within stories within the church, we are we hold up. Uh, men as examples, and we don't have enough of, uh, of strong, you know, faithful women that we can say, hey, here is a person. This is what they did. We can learn from their example. And so, you know, however many you, you want to highlight, I will just ask questions around those individuals. Wonderful. I have a lot of favorites. Um, okay. The first person that many people may recognize, as you mentioned earlier, is Emmeline B. Wells. In many ways, she was the leading suffragist among Latter-day Saints and Utahns generally, partly because she was the editor of the Woman's Exponent. And as editor, she connected with national suffrage leaders. So not only was she sharing news in the Exponent about women's rights and advancements across the country, um, but Emmeline was also connecting with national leaders' campaigns for suffrage back East. In the 1870s, when women in the East were circulating petitions for a constitutional amendment to enfranchise women, Emmeline said, hey, we can do that in Utah. And she did. They got more signatures from Utah than any other state or territory at the time. That was a big deal, and it kind of landed her, got some attention from from these women back east who invited her and other Latter-day Saint women then to come and speak to national suffrage conventions. Who who so, was she, though? I mean, like, I mean, that's kind of what she did, but is she 
one of the early saints that came across in 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 pioneer like where does she where does she come from what who is she she had joined the church in massachusetts as a young woman as a teenager she was baptized married and went to nauvoo with her new husband and family her family followed later so emmeline lived in nauvoo during the the years of joseph smith um made the trek across the plains, was married twice and with husbands who died or left, Mm -hmm. and then finally married again as the sixth wife of Daniel Wells here in Salt Lake City. So in many ways, she was like other women in the polygamous marriage system, financially and emotionally pretty left to her own devices. She was running her own household and taking care of herself, supporting herself. Hmm. When she stepped into her role in public life in the 1870s, her daughters were teenagers and things, but you can still see in her diaries, she mentions things where her, where people are asking, wait, can a woman be involved, like have a job as a newspaper editor and still take care of her family at the same time? And she faced a lot of the same tensions that women today are balancing with the different demands of family and other life. And you mentioned it, it's worth clarifying for people who are unfamiliar with uh, the exponent, the woman's exponent, what that even is, and and and, um, and what of it, what its role in all of this was. Yeah, the exponent started publication in 1872, lasted through till 1914. So it's one of the longest running women's newspapers in the United States. And as a semi-quasi organ for the Relief Society later, it shared a lot of Relief Society news, but it especially shared women's rights news. There were articles about cooking and and housekeeping tips and things like this, but it was mostly full of Relief Society news, um, sketches of Latter-day Saint history, but a lot of news about what women were doing, both in education, in professional pursuits, in the different professions like writing and medicine. There was so much about the exponent that really tied and connected women in Utah and Latter-day Saint readers to what was going on more broadly in the women's movement nationally. And, and there's obviously value in the title of the exponent. What's the connection with that and, and the movement? You know, I actually don't know how they chose the title. So I'd have to refer you to someone else who's more of a... Well, I look forward to that addendum to the book, Thinking Women, as we find out. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just something that's come to mind. Because there are so many terms that as we talk about, even suffrage, like... I think of suffrage and I don't think of like voting and the capacity to vote. I think of like, oh, they're suffering and oh, it's terrible and all these things. I, I always have to stop and go, oh, yeah, suffrage is, you know, the right to vote. everything yeah. to, within the right to vote. Yeah. So it, it's worth, I guess, examining terminology, that terminology yeah. and those things. Because because I think, and though I, neither of us know the answer, sorry, everyone listening, we'll find it and I'll maybe tag it on at the end if I can find it. Um but but those things do come about very intentionally and oftentimes can add just that extra level of clarity, of faith, something, you know, to know where those things come from. And especially where in, in these sort of modern times to know that the exponent too uh, came from its roots of the original exponent back 150 years ago, I think is worth noting. Let's take a break real quick. How does that sound? We'll come back and we'll get to know some more of your favorite figures. So be thinking of... Who we'll be talking about next, we'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. 
Hey, this is Dan the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. It's our ultra-mega back-to-school blowout sale. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars of ultra-high-quality laptops and desktops on sale for up to 50% off the original prices. We've got demos, scratch and dents, trade-ins, and funny-colored computers. It's crazy! Remember, you get a lifetime service guarantee on any PC Laptops brand computer. That means if you mess up your Windows or you get a virus or spyware, it's covered forever. Got an old yucky computer? No problem. We'll take it in on trade and we'll transfer all your pictures, music, and all your stuff to your PC Laptops computer for free. When you get your computer from PC Laptops, we'll make sure you're taken care of for a lifetime. To make it impossible to resist, we're doing 12 months special financing on any PC Laptops desktop or laptop computer. Have I lost my mind? Get into any one of our locations right now or check us out at PCLaptops.com. PC Laptops, where computers start at $7.99. PC Laptops, we love you. This is Kurt Frankum from Leading Saints, and I'd like to take a moment to visit the back row of the Culture Hall to let you know of an incredible virtual conference we are putting together. Have you ever had a deep desire to make room for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints in your local ward and community, but don't know the first step? Or maybe you've served in a leadership position And you want to set a strong example of inclusion, but aren't quite sure where to start. In order to help, we are putting together the LGBT Saints Virtual Summit in order to help Latter-day Saints better minister to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. We've selected more than 20 presenters who have professional experience, personal stories, and leadership perspectives who will help all of us be better prepared to minister to LGBT Latter-day Saints. This is a great conference for family, friends, and ward members of LGBTQ individuals. It begins September 8th, and you can register by texting the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash LGBT. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash LGBT. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, uh, I hope that you're enjoying this episode as we dive into those of our past that make our future the greatness that it is. Uh, I hope that you will go to patreon.com slash thecultural and show how much you love this episode by putting a couple bucks behind it. You, uh, you put a couple bucks behind that which you binge for your eyes, so why not that which you binge for your ears? It's uh, patreon.com slash thecultural Three different tiers, and it helps us to be able to continue to do things. Uh, plus, we have things like the fees for the website coming up. And if we have to dip into like uh, other sources of money, then you don't want to hear me complain about that. Head over to patreon.com slash thecultural Catherine. Uh, let me introduce you to one that I have been fascinated with, and I'm curious as to what you may know about her uh, as far as this whole discussion goes. Uh, I was curious to know about Lula Green Richards. What do you know about her? You know, she doesn't figure as much in our book because she takes a step away from public life right when our story picks up. But she was the first editor of The Woman's Exponent. So she was living up, I think, in Smithfield. Somebody who is smarter than me is going to correct us on that, I'm sure, in Cache Valley area in northern Utah. And she was actually asked to be the first editor of The Woman's Exponent. So she's a poet. Um, she wrote lots of things over the course of her lifetime. But she started this, this woman's newspaper that was published twice a month. Um, and later on, she stepped away for health reasons a couple of years later um, before Emmeline Wells became the editor. But she really wanted to make sure that women had a voice. And especially in the first episode, or the first I'm thinking podcasts here in the first issue Uh uh of the woman's exponent. She said something like it's better to 
to speak for ourselves than to be misrepresented by others. She felt strongly that it was important for Latter-day Saint women to have a voice nationally, to be able to share their own story and their own experiences. It's fascinating to me as I, I did sort of this uh, ancestry, this uh, genealogical research rabbit hole that there isn't very much known about her. She sort of she she has this this very pivotal role sort of shows up at different points. But there is a, by and large a large question mark about sort of sort of where she went and, and to with whom she associated with and and. and uh, beyond, uh, you know, when she sort of resigned from doing the exponent. It, it's worth putting voice to her name because, as you indicate, she is the first one. I won't I won't try and uh, ask any questions that you may not know the answer to anymore. I realize I'm putting you wholly on no, the spot, and I, and I think that you've been great about it. Who else would you like to highlight? Well, there are two other people I have in mind, and we can go with others, but Emily S. Richards is one, and okay. Hannah Ka'aepa, who is probably a name that none of your listeners have heard in the past. Let's and, go with that one first, because you're right. I have not heard that at all. Yeah, so there's a long and complicated history about voting rights in, in Utah. Latter-day Saint women were tied up in this issue of polygamy, as, as we talked about. Um, Congress eventually decided to take away women's right to vote in Utah because they weren't voting against polygamy mm -hmm. and Congress wanted to end polygamy. And they thought if we can reduce the political power of Latter-day Saints, that will, that will help. So all women lost the right to vote in 1887 here in Utah. Then women organized to regain the right to vote here, both in Utah when it became a state and they, would, they pushed for a national suffrage amendment. Part of the reasons for that was that they had seen the dangers of this state by state or territory by territory approach. They had seen that they had they had lost their voting rights and they wanted something to be enshrined in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. But Hanaka Epa, this is where she enters the stage. She was born in Hawaii. She and her family joined the church and she and her mother immigrated to Utah in 1898, mm -hmm. which is the same year that the, U the U.S. annexed Hawaii and made it a territory of the United States. Um, Hannah and her mother had been... Um, well educated, they were they were in connected in circles in Hawaii. They had known the Queen, whose name I am not good at pronouncing, Liliokulani. And they when Hannah came here, she, like many other native Hawaiian Latter-day Saints, settled in Yosepa in Tuila County, so west of Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. Hannah was active in the church. She was part of the Sunday school. There are records of her giving speeches at Sunday school conferences and things like that. Um, but she stepped onto the national stage when she went back east in 1899. A lot of Latter-day Saint women leaders had been invited to speak to the National Council of Women, um, which was an organization for women that the Relief Society and the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association were part of. And Hannah was one of the speakers. She spoke in English and Hawaiian, and her message was focused on voting rights for women in Hawaii. Hmm. And that was a really important message because it, when you think about this in 1890s, um, not too many people who were leading these national organizations were women of color. Mm -hmm. They didn't necessarily welcome or include women of color in their organizations, and they definitely weren't focused on voting rights for women in far-flung territories whose skin color was different than their own. Yeah. And so Hannah here was a great reminder. She urged people to make sure that they remembered the women of Hawaii in this, and she made a great impression. She gave lays to Susan B. Anthony, May Wright Sewell, other national leaders, and then was hosted by the deposed queen who was then living in D.C. trying to lobby for rights for Native Hawaiians. Hmm. So it's a fascinating story. We don't know a lot about her, um, but there's some about her in our book and also a biography on utahwomenshistory.org written by Andrea Hendricks-Komodo. Amanda Hendricks-Komodo, excuse me. It, it's so interesting to me because I've never, you know, I don't, I, I 
do, do not claim to be a scholar of this subject, certainly. But I, I claim to be at least aware, and that's not a name that I have ever, you know, heard mentioned in the discussion around this. Certainly, you know, MLMB Wells, sure. Seraph Young, of course, as we're having the discussion. Susan B. Susan B. Anthony, although not a member of the church, certainly, you know, we hear a, a tremendous amount about her. Um, but the but these other people who, for their own right, are the are the catalyst for many of these different areas to be able to have voting rights for to be able to encapsulate the entire United States, so that there could be that amendment, like it. It is both exciting for me to talk about it and also a shame. Like, I feel a little bit of guilt, or I don't know what it is as I try and process it, but but something like, these are the people that they can't speak for themselves because they have passed. We need to be speaking their names and sharing their stories and letting people know, hey, this is why this person was important. This is why you need to study these things. Absolutely. And it's difficult for so many of these women, like Hannah, um, Later in life, their obituary, things like this don't mention their suffrage work. Their family may not even know about these things. There's just little bits and pieces in the historical record that um, you can find if you're looking. But it sure took a lot of looking for us to find stories of women like Hannah and others. Let um, me actually. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, please. Well, as part of our work, both Rebecca and I work for a, a nonprofit and called Better Days 2020 that shares women's history locally here in Utah. Um, but we were trying to feature a series of 50 women that would represent a diverse range of cultures and backgrounds and work that they did to advance women's rights. And so we were really excited when we found people like Hannah and others. But um, we've worked with Hannah's descendants and they've applied for a suffrage marker for the National Votes for Women Trail to go out in USEPA. So I'm excited to see that come to pass. And I hope that even when we don't know a lot about these women, we can at least honor their names and remember something about them. Well, and likely, I mean, just because just because of how things are, but also certainly how the kind of the, uh, the, the church is like, there are people that are listening. That'll be like, Hey, wait a minute. That person is in my genealogy. And I had no idea that they had anything to do with this. Right. Uh, they can find it within their own family lines or, or an adjacent family line and, and, and be able to, to share that story or maybe be able to add to that story. You know, Absolutely. you know, what happened, to those individuals as maybe they took away from the uh, or stepped away from the limelight. I'm thinking again of Lula, which is a great name. And that's why I've sort of <laughs> clung to that over and over. I do want to let you get to the last one um, that, that you brought up. Um, yeah, let's go there first, actually. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm going to do a bait and switch here. Oh, I how, the name. Da how is dare that okay? you? I mean... <laughs> I was so excited, but yes, I will permit Well, the it. stories are connected, so I'll, I'll, I'll segue into this. Um, Emily Tanner Richards, or Emily S. Richards, as she was usually known, is another key player in the Latter-day Saint women's movement. Um, and people probably know about her because her husband was famous. He was a lawyer for the church, Franklin. Emily and Franklin spent time living in Washington, D.C., lobbying and pre presenting a good public face for the church. But a lot of people might not know about Emily's work for women's rights. She hmm. spoke at national conventions. She testified before Congress in favor of suffrage, like many other Latter-day Saint women. Um, but one of the key things that she did was to organize the Utah Women's Suffrage Association. So after Utah women had lost their voting rights, they needed a suffrage association to push for those to get back into, into government. And they modeled and partnered with Susan B. Anthony, her National Women's Suffrage Association, to create one here in Utah. Hmm. And Emily and other leaders went across Utah territory, mostly visiting relief societies and relief society halls and organizing the women there into local branches of the suffrage association. So by the time 
Utah was becoming a state, there were about 21 counties that had a suffrage association and many, many, many more towns. But women like Lucy Hepler were the leaders in those. These were women who had walked across the plains, many of them. Many of them had sacrificed and left behind homes and families for the gospel, but they felt equally certain that the restoration of the gospel also was supposed to restore women to their rightful place as men's natural equals created in the image of God, Mm -hmm. right? And so women like Lucy Hepler, who lived in Glenwood in rural Sevier County, Utah, worked with the women to make sure that they had a voice. Um, She would hold lectures. She appointed people to teach on different subjects. They sang songs from the Utah Woman Suffrage Songbook, which were often to Latter-day Saint tunes, um, but new words. Change the um, words. We were doing parody songs even back then. I guess not parody, They were, yeah. But well, they published lyrics. it. It yeah. was legit, right? But there's some great ones and, and with poetry written by Utah women. Um, but women like Lucy really wanted to make sure that women knew how to use the vote and were empowered political actors when they regained their right to vote. So she made sure that they taught lessons on different political subjects and that they heard from different speakers. Hmm. And she worked also to make sure that they petitioned when the constitutional convention was happening. They're drawing up what Utah is going to look like as a new state in 1895. It's all men in the room. It was all men who were elected as delegates, right? It was all men who were voting for this. Um, But they wanted to make sure that women's voices would be heard. And so they went around door to door or meeting to meeting. We're not exactly sure how. And they gathered petition signatures from thousands of women and men across Utah asking that women's equal rights be placed in the Constitution. And so we have hundreds and thousands of women to thank for that advancement. But Lucy Hepler is one of those. You know, it's another couple great names, and I hope you will forgive the crudeness of this question. But I think that there that this is a come at for a lot of people. I mean, women have the right to vote and it's, you know, 2020 now. So why do we care? Right. I, yes. I, I think that, uh, and it's uh, it's not an opinion I agree with. I think that there is value in it, but you know, for people that would say, you know, that was a, a a long time ago or a certain amount of years ago, and that's not how it is anymore. Why would I even take the time to to check this out or to learn about these people, or or why does any of this even matter? Yeah, there are so many reasons. Part of it, like you mentioned before, this isn't that past. The 19th Amendment was ratified 100 years ago. It was 55 years ago that Voting Rights Act enacted protections for women and men of color. So not everybody's been able to vote for a very long time. Right. But part of it is the heart of our decision making as a society. When people have a voice in government and a voice in in the political process, that changes the decisions that we make. When we listen to everybody's voices, the outcomes are better. There's lots of research coming out about this from different places, Mm -hmm. BYU and others that talk about how decision-making changes when women are part of the equation. Oh, I know what you're talking about. We talked, we talked with Susan Madsen here in the cultural hall about her research and, and, and tremendous uh, when we have all parties, uh, whether we're talking about men and women or, you know, men and women of color or, just as many people of different backgrounds that we can have in a room to make a decision, our decisions become greater. Absolutely. When we have that range of perspectives and experience that everyone brings, we can be attentive to different problems that exist in our society. And we have better brain power to draw on than just half of the country, right? Mm -hmm. To try to solve those problems. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge deal. I think also one of the things that was so key to me as we looked through examples of relief society, women organizing, and and a lot of civic engagement at times past, I think there's a moment here in the United States and in other countries 
where we, you question, right, what's going on in society? Are things going the way that I want to? There's, there are problems, there are difficulties. It, it seems overwhelming. Um, but the women in the past wanted us to have a voice. They wanted everyone to be able to make change in their society. And it wasn't just to be able to cast a ballot, but it was so that you could have influence in public affairs, so that you could protect families and children's rights, so that you could fight for equal education, so that you could protect water and air and make sure that there was a clean environment for the children coming up in mm -hmm. the future. Mm -hmm. There are so many issues that they cared about. And the vote was just the first doorway. It was opening the door to be able to influence and enact change that would make the society better, right? More equal, more just. We're still working towards a vision, toward an ideal um, that we haven't reached yet. But hey, when we all have a say and when we all dig in, that gets us closer. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that you didn't just hang up the Zoom call when I asked the question because- Not at all. Uh, I mean, it-, it, it history is a struggle for some to to find the value in it and, and everything um i would also contend with some of what you're saying i think still applies today within the church that you know women's voices need to be more heard and we are doing a better job of it but better doesn't mean that we've arrived you know we, we hear within ward councils that you know there are able to be more than just that you know, the Relief Society president at, at a ward council, but that more women and other voices are being able to be invited within that. And we'll be better when we do that. Absolutely. I'm thinking of a story back in the 1880s, Sarah Kimball, who was one of the original founders of the Relief Society, a key suffrage leader in Utah. She was sometimes called the Susan B. Anthony of Utah. Um, but she wrote in the 1880s in a little time capsule for future Relief Society members to open up. She was the secretary at the time of the general presidency. And she said something about, I'm going to paraphrase it here. I can't remember the exact words, but I hope that this finds you in possession of more rights and privileges than we now have. Hmm. Um, and I think that she meant that in all ways, religious, economic, social, political, um, it's all connected. And I think that the vision of women like Sarah who could see that that doorway and that pathway forward was key in their perseverance and can be key in ours as we look at what change we want to enact in society or in the church, what we think um, could be better, how we can love our neighbors and build the kingdom of God on earth. There's a lot that we can do if everybody's voices are part of that equation. What is it that gets you so jazzed in studying this and writing a book about it? I love history because I like to know how we got to now how we got to the way things are today. So I've been interested in that for a long time. I'm actually working on a dissertation right now about Latter-day Saint women's suffrage petitioning. So a very, very, very small <laughs> piece of that puzzle. But what interests me most about that, I think is this, this question that women in the United States were fighting for their rights back in the 19th century, 20th century, and women in Utah were so far ahead in some ways, right? They enjoyed that privilege, right, whatever you want to call it, of casting a vote. And they were working at the same time to defend that, to try to keep people from taking it away. And I think one of the things about this story that, that really resonates with me or gets me interested is that, that those steps forward and backward were so precarious, that they depended on the voices of different people. It really makes me see the importance of raising my voice on issues that I care about to try to protect the issues that I think are important. Now, uh, earlier this week, we were able to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the first vote being cast, that on the 17th of August. And then next week, we celebrate the Women's Equality Day on the 26th of August. How do you suggest that uh, 
whether we're listening to this in real time uh, and and those days are just past and just before us, or someone's coming to this and listening to it in the future, uh, how can how can we best celebrate um, the, these individuals? How would you recommend that we we celebrate them? There's so many ways. I think learning those stories, knowing about the people who've come before us is empowering and because it can help us see the ways that we can use our own talents and skills in society, even if we're not the same as somebody who came before, even if you don't want to run for president. So I think digging into some of that history is important. There are cool stories of path-breaking, trailblazing women who did things no one had ever done before that we now take for granted. Hmm. So Dig in. UtahWomensHistory.org is a great place to start if you live in Utah. There's lots of resources coming out across the country if you're in the United States um, for this anniversary. But I think one of the important things we can do is to name and find the women in our own families, in our own communities who've made things better. When you're driving down the street, when you're in public spaces, notice the street names, the building names, and the statues. Who do you see? Um, it's usually a lot of men and mm-hmm. usually white men at that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And there's so much that we could do to make public the contributions of women, of people of color, of people in our society who are usually left out. And I think that the suffragists who fought for voting rights would would count it as carrying forward their legacy if we were working to not only honor their history, but to make sure that we are excavating and lifting up voices that have been lost for too long. It's an interesting thing when you were saying, you know, learn these people. Uh, unfortunately, I can't remember this individual's name, but I am the king of asking the question like, who? Who was that? And I think that my wife, I love her dearly, and she will edit this and hear us talk about uh, this. But we were recently on a trip and we stopped at a rest area that I can't remember the individual's name, but it was like Ernest Fields. And, you know, when you're going on a vacation and you are you stop you want to make available the the resources of the rest area and get right back on the road. She sort of walks around and I have stopped because whatever this gentleman's name and a much better story if I could remember the name, but I decided to Google the name of the person who the rest area was named after. And mm-hmm. it and it's this long wiki entry, but I learned about this guy who came to this valley who, uh, you know, he had suffered a bunch of strife and, and several children who had passed away. And that he was able to, you know, like, like this just amazing pioneering story. And she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm just I, I Googled the name of the rest area because I want to know who this is. And she's like, are we are we going? Can we go? And it's it's funny um, because it, it is just taking that second to be curious. Who is you know, why is why is it Seraph Young? Who is this statue? I think of. Um, oh, I can't remember her name up on the Utah State Capitol. Martha Hughes Cannon. Yes. Yeah. And 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 to that point, and this is years now, I feel embarrassed that I didn't know the name off the top of my head, but I didn't know why there was a statue of Martha Hughes Cannon up on the, the Utah State Capitol. Who is she? Look her up yourself. I'm not going to do the work for you. But it's interesting if we can just keep our eyes open and and our ears as we have these different discussions, especially as we're celebrating these holidays and these markers, we may find um, those that we can look to for examples, but also those that might be a, a, a part of our family history. And I think that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. We I, talk about this with kids sometimes, right? That kids need good role models, but all of us need to see women and men as agents who made change happen. And the people who built the ground that we stand on now. 
Uh, I want to take a break, and in the third block, I want to transfer this a little bit. I'm going to put you on the spot as we sort of expound our thinking with this. There's a lot of change that's going on in the world today. What can we learn from those of 100 years ago, 150 years ago, that might be able to help us as the world is again finding a way to try and make things better for all people? We'll come back and we'll do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, we'll, of course, get to the three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the Cultural Hall. We'll ask those of Catherine. She's never listened to, to an episode of the Cultural Hall, so she has no idea what's to come. I'm not going to give you the clue. I didn't tell her while we were off the air, uh, so those will come as a surprise to her as we get to them. Uh, also, as we were in a break, you mentioned something kind of cool about Martha Hughes Cannon. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with everything that we're talking about, but it's a, a, a fun note. So I'll let you toss that in. Yeah. And Martha Hughes Cannon was a suffragist and the first elected woman as a state senator in the United States. She ran for office in 1896, the year of Utah's statehood. And one of the people who happened to be on the ballot opposing her was her husband. I was so going to say, I, ho- deal. I, ho- yeah. I hope that you bring that up. Yeah. Yep. I love that story. Actually, Emmeline Wells was also on the ballot on the other side. Huh. Um, so there were several women on both sides of the political spectrum in that election. But Martha won. She was a doctor and, and a public speaker. She had earned four degrees. She's a really powerful woman. Um, she built her skill set because she wanted to change public health and enact change for the better. So as a state senator, she started Utah's Department of Health and lots of other programs. But for that work, she's being honored with a statue in D.C. Um, National Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol features two statues from each state. And Martha is going in. She was supposed to go in in August um, for the anniversary of the 100th Amendment or of the 19th Amendment. But she's going to go in sometime soon. Right now she's living in a warehouse, but I'm excited. They to have her masked up, socially distant <laughs> in a warehouse. She's they, not breathing on anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They will get her in there. And interesting, she uh, replaces another member of the church, Philo T. Farnsworth, who, if people don't know, had a great deal to do with the invention of the television. Do you know? You, of course, do. Anyone? This is this is the fun trivia that I love. The other statue that's there in the Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. The winner is Brigham Young. You knew. You knew, didn't you? I did. Yeah. There's no way we were going to replace Brigham. So yeah. <laughs> Mark, I, th- I think the Utah legislature would only would only replace Philo, right? Yeah. He was yeah. One yeah. Block, he'll it, have a good home. Uh, and and you know, do we talk about replacing statues? And I think that that's an interesting segue into where I want to go with the rest of this. Uh, we talk about history. Is there value in studying it? We both say, you know, very very loudly, yes. We are living in the history of the future. Think about that for a second. In this mo- in this movement, in this moment now, when voices who have otherwise been quieted or just not even heard uh, are getting an opportunity to be shared, what can we learn from the suffragist movement that we can apply, that we can employ 
during this time of, if we want to call it Black Lives Matter, if we want to call it equality for everyone, whatever we want to call it. I don't want to incite any sort of, you know, anger or someone not to listen by what I call it. I just want everyone to be treated equally and fairly and loved like it should be. Yeah, there's a lot of history from the suffrage movement and voting rights that I think applies really well here. Um, one of the things we tend to do, I think, when we look at the past is we kind of say like, oh, everyone agreed all the time. They got along. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we sometimes downplay the conflict and struggle that there was. Um, I think as people are reigniting their interest in civil rights history here in the United States, at least that some of that's coming to the fore. But um, even when we talk about women who fought for the right to vote, there were lots of different opinions about how to actually make that change happen national organizations split and came back together and split again over differences in tactics. Hmm. Um, some of them thought we should make noise and make a big fuss and stand in front of the White House and protest. That was the first time anybody protested at the White House, by the way. Was, yeah. uh, Women did it first. Did you hear rights. that? Dibs. Boop. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> totally. But it was something totally new and shocking and crazy. And people thought that was going way too far. And so, there, so those people thought we need to be respectable, write letters, meet with the politicians. And really, when you think about it, both avenues of, of protest or, or activism are what really made that change happen. Hmm. I think that, that that's a lesson for today, right? That, that protests and publicity is really important in getting people's attention and making change happen, but also building those relationships and working, 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 working for a long time to, to create possibilities and relationships that will allow for change yeah. were also big yeah. and each of those sides both sides of those national suffrage movement thought that the other one was totally ruining it they hated each other they thought they were just sinking the cause hmm. but in reality i think they needed both they needed each other what else so, what else i know i'm putting you on the spot <laughs> i gotta think about this one thing I, that is important to me as a historian is that statues memorials things like this that we're talking a lot about these days in the united states um, those represent something. They represent the values that we as a culture want to uphold or to pass along or things like this. So I think it's really important to ask what those values are. Hmm. And um, nothing's set in stone. We don't, um, we don't have to relive the past. We don't have to try to find perfect people in the past because that does not exist. Mm -hmm. As we know, human beings are fallible. But I think that we can think carefully about what the what the values are that we want our kids and that we want ourselves to really strive for. And those are the things that we should be representing in our own lives, in our public discourse. And those are the voices that we should be supporting. Yeah. Beautifully said. Really. I think, I think it's such a valuable discussion and, and really, I mean, if no other come at um, for, for everything that's going on today is to be able to look at something in the past, right? For some, it's too much, right? This is, it's too much. I don't know how, I don't know how and where and what, but if we can take something that, I don't know that we would say that it's settled, but it's maybe certainly more settled than what's going on now and be able to look at it and say, yes, there was, there were these people who did this and, and, and people didn't like that, but then there was this other group and, and, and this was able to enact this change and all these different pieces and it came to be better. I think, I think that there's a lot of people that are just like, can can we just get a promise that it's going to be better? Like at some point, can there be a better? Can we, can we have a promise of a better? And, and so no coincidence that it's better days 2020. Not at all. Hmm. And it's, it's not something that just happens overnight. Again, it's generations after generations of people 
moving that change forward slowly. Hmm. I love it. Uh, the name of the book that people can pick up and be able to purchase is Thinking Women. It's a timeline of suffrage in Utah. Certainly lessons for everyone. You don't just have to be a Utah. All you folks listening in New Zealand and England, it's a great read for everybody. Uh, a, a, a great look in the past. And, and like we've hopefully highlighted uh, things of the present and you know, subsequently the future as well. It's a book from Deseret Book and, and appreciate everything that they do in helping us be able to speak with fine people like Catherine Kitterman. Uh, my well wishes to Rebecca Ryan Clark, who is taking care of some sick family, and that's why she couldn't be a part of it. She's also an author of this book. Uh, how do you guys know each other? Did you go to her or did she come to you and say, let's do this? So we actually both worked for Better Days 2020, this nonprofit, and then it approached Desert Book that way. So oh, cool. Very it was cool. a natural. I actually used to work with her husband years ago, and we'd always said, oh, we need to talk about our interest in history someday. And now we got the chance. Yeah. Lots of late nights. People here in Utah, for people that don't live in Utah, we call it Small Lake City, um, where you end up knowing everyone somehow because you either were in a ward or served a mission or went to school or all those things. Um, we now will turn to the three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I know you've been fretting over these questions. <laughs> Fret not. I have. But, my palms are sweaty. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're easy. You'll be fine. The first question is, is, do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I do. I'm a gospel doctrine teacher. That's got to be a class that, that hasn't met for months. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be awesome, though. Yep, I really enjoy that. It's, yeah, it's a fun way to to dig in myself. Uh, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Oh gosh, I'm sure I'm going to think of something tonight that I would make up. I actually think I would really pick to be a, a Sunday school teacher. That's probably my favorite. Is there a particular um, part of uh, being a gospel doctor or Sunday school teacher that you really like? Topic-wise, no. I just really like um, that discussion, especially yeah. with the with the changes to the church structure. We'll see if we ever go back to <laughs> physically meeting in buildings together again. But I sure enjoyed um, the opportunity to have conversations with people who have so many perspectives. And I can think that something's really obvious to me. My own perspective makes a lot of sense. But then I hear it said in new words or in new ways from somebody else. And hmm. it really changes how I think about things. Cool. The last question we leave up to you for your own interpretation. However, the question remains, and it is, what is your favorite part of your faith? Hmm. I like knowing that change is possible. Um, as a historian, I look at things in the past all of the time. And I, I, I remember things in my own life. I, I'm looking back at stuff in the past and you think, how is it possible to get out of being the same way that I've always been, right? Or how can people change? How can societies and cultures change? And I think that's one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest things that draws me to the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is that, that truth that, that we can change, that we can be better, that we can be different. Hmm. And I think that applies not only to we as individuals, but we as a people and hope that that, that shows for the future. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show. Ow!